all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. It's good to have you with us this morning. This is the program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have. doesn't really matter what that is. We're not thematic today, so you can call in with those side effects of different things or maybe it's a new medication or symptom. All those questions and more are welcome. You can reach us today. You can always always email us if you're not able to call in. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. If we have time today, we may be diving into a couple of recent emails and uh, answering those online for everybody or, or live for everybody. You can also um, go online and download us as a podcast. Just go to your favorite podcasting app and look for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio and download that. Hope everybody's having a great spring day today, and the weather's a little bit chilly after a little bit cooler last night. These are the kinds of, I actually have a, a fire pit that I like to fire up on these nights. Um, might do that tonight. We'll see. But I uh, hope everybody's having a great day. and. Uh, you know, pollen, we talked a lot about that last week and about the effects of that and allergies and some other things, too. Um, you know, it is going a little bit down in levels, and a couple of cold snaps really did in a lot of plants and trees and sort of cut that pollen production off for a while, particularly that hard freeze that we had. But it's only a matter of time here in the south when that's going to crank back up and we're going to have plenty of that. So take some precautions now. I am because I am sensitive to those kinds of things. So I have my regimen that I like to do. You know, in the news, there's lots of different things out there. Uh, This one is uh, actually I was going through one of the journals that I like to look at um, and saw an article from the uh, March 27th um, um, New England Journal of Medicine that came out. And, uh, you know, statins have been used for a long time. Those are things like a Torvastatin, Rosuvastatin, anything that has that last name called statin on, on the end of it. They are cholesterol medications that are used to Really, in addition to lowering the bad type of cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, they also reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke uh, and other cardiovascular risk factors. And certainly if you have things like heart failure, they're very useful medications in keeping you alive and keeping you um, from having um, a secondary event, a secondary heart attack or stroke. And they're very, very powerful medications. And uh, 
because of that, they are pretty much described for anybody who is either at risk or has, who has had already a condition that has, is related to their heart or to, uh, to a stroke. And uh, we call that secondary prevention of, of further strokes or heart attacks if you've already had one. But there, like with every medication, there's a lot of people that, um, that can't take that or do have side effects to that. There's a medication that was approved uh, now about, I guess, two years ago by the FDA to help lower cholesterol. We have a few other medications that have been used, uh, like Zetia, which is one of, of the most common ones. There's a couple of other older medications like Fibrates and uh, other, other cholesterol-lowering medications. But um, the problem with those, um, in uh, contrast to the statins, they don't really decrease the risk of a further heart attack. You can get the, the LDL cholesterol down a little bit lower with those, but they don't have the powerful side effect or the good side effects, actually, of lowering your risk of heart attack or stroke. Well, there is a new medication. Again, it came out about two years ago, Bempedoic Acid. That's B-E-M-P-E-D-O-I-C. And it was uh, a, a licensed by the FDA to decrease LDL cholesterol. Uh, but what we didn't know until recently is what are its effects on those things like uh, non-fatal MI, like having a, another heart attack and uh, another stroke. And it does seem to have the same type of effect as the statins without some of the side effects. So if you're having uh, you know, side effects from the statins, certainly if you're not, that's fine. You don't need to jump ship. It's not better than statins, but it does seem to have some of the same outcomes data, at least on this early report. This is the CLEAR, that's C-L-E-A-R, outcomes study. So you can uh, Google that and look at it. You've probably seen that in the in the news lately, but I just thought I'd mention that, particularly if you're having problems with uh, with statins, with side effects, you might want to ask your physician about bimpedoic acid. So right off the press there. Let's go to our first caller, Ronnie from Ripley. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. What's your question today? I... Uh I lost part of my eyesight a couple of days ago, and it didn't come back. And so I called my, uh, I get health care at the VA, and I told them what happened, and they told me to go to uh, the ER where I was close to. And so I did, and uh, they did some kind of a C scan or something, mm-hmm. and... My vision has not come back. I, there's places that I, it's like black spots that I can't see through, and I don't see colors that I know are supposed to be there. And uh, they told me to go to an eye doctor, and I'm going to, but I, I just was wondering, if do you know what might be causing that kind of thing? Yeah, Ronnie, there's a couple of different, well, actually, a lot of things that can cause uh, like what we call acute or sudden visual loss, and particularly um, some of them are uh, well, they're, they're what we call ocular emergencies, and going to the ER is exactly the thing that you needed to do. 
And uh, it could be caused by a number of things. Sometimes you can have blockage of blood flow to the back of the eye. Um, The retina is the back part of the eye that helps us to see. So it's directly connected by nerves to our brains, to the back of our brains, which is the the part of the brain that interprets all of that, all of those signals from our eyes and gives us the ability to see. So sometimes um, you can reduce blood flow to that area and you can have uh, damage to, the, to that layer or that retina uh, on the back of your eye. But there can also be other things. Sometimes you can have a retinal detachment. Uh, sometimes you can have uh, problems within the brain itself. Uh, so there is a long list of things that can do that and a long list of causes that can cause those kinds of things like a reduced blood flow can be uh, a plaque, uh, which is just a, a really hard substance on the inside of your blood vessels that could sort of chip off and flow downstream and get lodged in those small arteries that feed the eye. Um, but the biggest thing is getting in to see that ophthalmologist first, and they're probably going to do a dilated eye exam, and they may want to do some additional testing um, to look at the eye structure itself and the brain. And uh, it, I think you said they did a CT scan. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it was like yeah. that or something like that. Yeah, and that's a that's a common thing for ERs to have. Sometimes ERs don't have access to an MRI, but an MRI is probably, uh, depending on what they're looking at, sometimes that's a little bit better to see the smaller details of the soft tissue details. CT is usually the first go-to, though, because it can tell you, you know, whether or not you've got a blockage somewhere, uh, blood flow-wise, or but it doesn't show you the, the small soft tissue structures, uh, but it is the first thing that they do. Is that eye appointment with the ophthalmologist, with the eye doctor, is that coming up pretty quickly? I've got a call to schedule that today. I called when this wouldn't go away. I talked to an RN at the VA, and yeah. he told me to go to the ER. Right. And so I, well, yeah, they I wouldn't would... let me drive home. They brought they brought me back home. They were afraid yeah. for me to drive, and I guess they were right. But yeah. uh, I yeah, had got I... to call and do an appointment with the eye clinic at the hospital, but I just was curious to know how this could happen. It it just it just was uh yeah shot, it, you know. it it depends on it depends on you know what the cause is but the the it particularly if it's a reduced anything that happens suddenly like that you want to get seen about pretty quickly you know some of the things like somebody else have things like cataracts they they don't that's not a sudden visual loss that's something that clouds your vision because of the lens in your eye uh you know becoming more uh less transparent over time or if you have floaters that's usually not a, a an emergency but sudden visual loss because it can be a loss of blood flow it can be something that happens or occurs to the nerves uh, either at the back of your eye or between there and the back of your brain or anywhere along that pathway. It's sort of hard to say based on, you know, just the initial thing. Um, Are you seeing flashing lights in that eye or is it complete loss of vision in that eye? It's just black spots. There's places that I look and I have to look away from what I'm Mm -hmm. looking at to be able to see what I'm trying to see. Yeah. But, uh, after this happened, uh, and 
they wouldn't let me drive on. Now I'm afraid to drive. So I'm gonna. Yeah, it's it's going to be really hard to drive or do anything like that just because of, of where you're describing. It sounds like it's in the central vision area of your eye if you're having to look off to the side to see. But, yeah, definitely call yeah. the ophthalmologist and, and tell them, you know, that you went to the ER, that you need an appointment. They're probably going to be able to get you in pretty quick because, again, this is something that you want to be seen within, within a, hours to a day of it happening. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I was I was just curious. I uh, appreciate your time and yes. enjoy your program also. Oh. I always listen to you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it, Ronnie. You take care. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. You can email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Jimmy, if I could jump in here right now with a question, and that is, uh, traditionally, I was never really susceptible to allergies or anything, but it seems like this year I've, I've been suffering from that. I'm kind of wondering, is it because it's worse this year or over time as you get older, can your susceptibility to allergies change? Yeah, that's a great question. That's uh, Kevin Farrell, our producer, and uh, always uh, has great questions. But, uh, yeah, so allergies are tricky. Just because you, no matter what age you are, you can develop an allergic reaction to something that you've been exposed to for decades. And um, sometimes it is uh, a product of just having a worse season of things or something that you're exposed to in a little bit different way. Um but it may be something that your body's just reacting to in a more rigorous fashion, and it sort of comes and goes. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why immunotherapy, you know, sort of the allergy shots that people get with the allergist, if they have really bad allergies, they can go and get tested to see which, uh, which allergens, which things that are floating around in the air that you're coming into contact with, um, which ones are causing you that allergic response. And then they inject small amounts of that underneath the skin periodically to change over your body's immune system the way it's recognizing that. So you're sort of telling the body, hey, don't have those hives and that sneezing and the watery eyes and all the things. We want you to view this as a foreign material, but just not in the way that you're doing it. So there is a way to do that with immunotherapy. It's very effective. You can at least decrease the symptoms of a person. And sometimes that can go away with time. You know, if if you've had immunotherapy and then you've uh, had a good response, but then uh, after a while it it uh, comes back. So just uh, something to think about. But yeah, it you can develop that. You can develop asthma at any point in your life. A lot of people will say, well, I can't have asthma. I'm not young. And only the young, you know, younger patients get asthma. Not true. There's a lot of adults that can get asthma uh, at any age. And it's just, again, it's your body's immune system that is recognizing something as a foreign material and uh, having it's it's sort of turned on a little bit too much. And it can have a lot of bad effects. A lot of people say, well, hey, we want strong immune systems. Isn't that a good thing? It is. But um, when they don't act uh, in the way that it's designed to, to certain things, that's when you get those allergic responses. Incidentally, people who move say, to Mississippi from other places, just had a patient, new patient that we saw last week that um, moved here from the southwest, 
Um, it takes about a year or two before you develop that uh, allergic response to things. Now, some people can have it right off the bat, but generally speaking, the first year that you're exposed to it, you don't really have much problems. It's the next year. Um, so you might have uh, one good year in the south with Mississippi with the way our allergens are, but uh, who knows? Hopefully that'll, that'll get better. But one good thing you can do, though, is just anticipate that. If you know that you have allergic you know, allergic symptoms, go ahead and do that nasal wash routine. Go ahead and start taking that Flonase or that antihistamine uh, if you know that it's, uh, that it's um, you know, if it's effective in the past. So those things do work. Um, along those lines, we had an email from a listener that said, uh, are there any definitive tests for autoimmune diseases? I have recurring iritis in one eye, and I was wondering what test should a physician prescribe? Uh, great question. We do appreciate you sharing that with us. We're going to share it for our larger audience because it's certainly a pertinent question that a lot of people out there might be interested in. So we've been talking about an immune response with allergies. An autoimmune response is when your body's immune system gets turned on, and instead of looking for foreign things that come into contact with the body or come inside the body and saying, hey, we need to get rid of that, it mistakenly identifies a part of your own body's tissue as foreign and starts fighting it in one way or another. That's a simplistic way of thinking about that. But that's an autoimmune uh, problem. And there's lots of different examples of this. Some of the more common ones that people might be uh, accustomed to, or at least have maybe somebody in the family, or maybe you have, rheumatoid arthritis is one. Um, there are several different um, thyroid autoimmune processes that can happen. happen. Um, there are autoimmune processes that can affect just your skin so that you lose pigment in the skin, or there are autoimmune processes that just affect certain types of tissue. So the iris, the colored part of your eye, is one of those that can um, can be affected by some of these, and it is associated with a number of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So if you're having that, if you've been diagnosed with that in one eye, as our listener uh, emailed us, then um, your physician's probably going to ask you other questions. And there's not just one test, like one blood test to test for that. You can test for several different things, looking in general at the amount of inflammation that sometimes goes along with uh, an autoimmune process. But you really need to get the history to know exactly what to get. And rheumatoid arthritis is a good example. There are certain patients that uh, you can get a rheumatoid factor, which is a blood test, and if it's high enough and it's positive and they have those symptoms, then they might have rheumatoid arthritis. But if they have a positive rheumatoid factor, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have rheumatoid arthritis if they don't have the symptoms. Uh, and the converse is true, too. While most people will have a positive rheumatoid factor, a lot of people don't, they still have rheumatoid arthritis. So you really have to get that history. You have to look at the physical exam, make sure that it fits with that. And the frustrating thing with autoimmune diseases is it's almost never a quick diagnosis. There are some that are very easy, but usually if you, from the time of onset of the symptoms to when you get diagnosed, sometimes that can be three or six months. And that's just because it takes some time to develop those other symptoms that sort of define that autoimmune process. 
And there's some patients that, you know, we used to say they don't read the textbook, meaning that they don't, you know, follow exactly how a disease process is described. And sometimes they have an overlap of one or two, uh, of, of two or more autoimmune processes. So very complicated. Rheumatologists are experts at this, and uh, they can uh, can know exactly what to do if you're, if you're a regular physician, if you're a uh, primary care physician that can't quite figure it out. They can probably go ahead and get the ball rolling, but uh, we don't have enough rheumatologists around, but uh, they are really useful um, when you see them to sort of tease these kinds of things out. So that's where I would go with that with a test. And if you have iritis, uh, you definitely need to start the, the investigative process because that, that can affect your eye in a negative way. Let's go to Alice from Macomb. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. I'm getting kind of aware of it. It's good. And uh, every time I call, you're talking about me. <laughs> I got so much going on, so it's kind of scary. But I give it all to you one at a time. I'm going to start with my eyes. Okay. Glaucoma, glaucoma, cataract, dry eyes. It's precious, so I take drops every night to treat the glaucoma in this. Precious. Do the glaucoma ever go away? Yeah, good question. Glaucoma is uh, it is an increase in in the pressure um, in the front part of your eye, really in the in, interior eye, and um, it can be it can cause blindness because it puts pressure on I the nerves. Yeah, yeah, it can. Right. So uh, there's a couple of different ways that they treat it, and there's a couple of different types of it, but eye drops are are a common uh, treatment for it. And your question about does it go away, usually not. And uh, there are some things that can cure it, like if you have... For instance, if you develop it, say, at an earlier age because of the shape of your eye, which can sort of determine if you're at risk for it, they can go ahead and and replace the lens in your eye like they would for a cataract. And that Excuse me for cutting you off. Excuse me for cutting you off. I'm 75 now. I was 74 last year. I found out about that last year. Yeah, yeah, and that can be it can it can develop you know as young as in your forties or fifties, usually in the fifties or more. But uh, in the seventies, certainly you can get that. But sometimes just by replacing that that lens in your eye with cataracts, that can because of the way they do that and the replacement of it, that sort of cures your glaucoma. Um, but it just sort of depends. But the, it, as long as you have the same. The same parts, I guess I would say, of your eye, um, then you're probably going to have to keep treating that, you know, with eye drops at least, or or some other things. And then with the uh, uh, bare palsy that I have, still got a little bit of that. I got the bare palsy in uh, April the ninth, twenty twenty, and I still got a bit of that. And that's the worst eye if they're on the side with a bare palsy here. Yeah, yeah. Oh. About something else. Okay. Uh, with the Go ahead. I can talking about and stuff. I got the one for it. Oh, I can't pronounce it. So, do arthritis cause tingling, pen sticking, and numbness in your feet and your legs? 
Yeah, usually, you know, there's different types of arthritis. The most common one is the wear and tear type, and that's where, you know, as we get older, we just do damage to our to our joints, and uh, sometimes that can be made worse by increased weight or maybe we had an injury to a joint. Common places are in the back and the hips and the and the knees just because we carry around more weight there, but you can have it in, you know, lots of different places. That's not one of those autoimmune processes. Now, sometimes people have things like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, that that term sort of overused, though. I mean, a lot of people who have that wear and tear type, the osteoarthritis, they say I have they have rheumatoid, but they really don't. Your your question about the pins and needles and feeling that in your feet and lower legs. That's not really associated with arthritis. You can have pain in the joint or around the joint, but usually if you're having that, you may have something called neuropathy. And oh, that, yeah, that was mentioned. That was mentioned too. Right, exactly. And that, you know, it can be caused by things like uh, diabetes or certain vitamin deficiencies like B12 deficiency, um, oh, any kind I'm of... taking those. Excuse me for cutting you off. I take B12... Vitamin D and uh, magnesium. Yeah, I saw yeah. all that last year. I ought to do some finding out when y'all have done it. Years ago, it wouldn't have got this flat on thing. Right. Yeah, that that may help some depending on the, um, you know, on the type. But, um, but yeah, it just sort of depends. If you do have diabetes, they, you know, treating the diabetes itself, and then there are some medications Things like Neurontin or Gabapentin or Lyrica can help sometimes. Nobody never told me I've got no diabetes. Yeah, you need to you need to ask about that if you haven't, uh, because it's probably not connected to your arthritis. It might be something totally separate. Oh, okay. Like you, like you needed now. something like you needed something else bothering you, Alice, right? Oh, I don't need that, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alice. Well, we thank you for calling, and you take care, okay? Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yes, ma'am. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. Let's go to Jay from Macomb. Good morning, Jay. Hey, uh, Dr. Jimmy. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, this is Jay calling from Macomb. Uh, I really enjoy your show. Uh, I'm actually an ophthalmologist down here. And yeah. I was just going to comment. Actually, so your patients have been outpatient, so it's been great. Uh, <laughs> with the iritis, <laughs> with the iritis, uh, you know, um, of course, most common cause is, is idiopathic, which to your listeners means the doctor's an idiot. We don't know what causes it. Right, and it's right. usually nothing. It just happens. But if she's having a chronic iritis, there usually is a factor that's doing exactly And an ophthalmologist, uh, to your listeners, is a medical doctor who's an eye doctor also, uh, but who's special, a medical doctor who specializes in disease and surgery of the eye would do a workup for her, you know, right. uh, history specific, which, of course, different things for different races, ages, uh, male, female, uh, can specialize that. So she probably, if she's having a chronic iritis, she needs to have that workup. You're, a rheumatologist, your wife, can absolutely do that. But it's, it's you know, since there are so few, just a good ophthalmologist, they all know that we all have the 
different workup sheets. Um, yeah. Also, yeah. your second patient who's calling about uh, with a cataracts and glaucoma, you're right. Cataract surgery can actually improve glaucoma. Uh, usually, they still stay on drops. Another thing we do sometimes, like if I have a patient that I'm doing cataract surgery on who has glaucoma, a lot of times now I will put in a micro stent, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an eye stent. It's not with big tubes or stuff that we do specifically for glaucoma. It's just this little tiny stent that probably does do away with everything, but it can help. And it's just at the very end of the case, we slip that in. Uh, just throwing those out there. Uh, thank you again for such a great job. I love listening to your show. I re- learn things that I've forgotten and remember things which helps me to become a better physician, keep being a better physician. Well, thank you, Jay. I do appreciate you calling in. And you know, the, the eye is the window to the soul, and it's also the window yes. to systemic problems in the body. And uh, you're yes. right. I, you know, a lot of times, and you're right, I've had you know, I had one of my patients, His he was going for his regular, you know, yearly um, eye exam, and his ophthalmologist gave me a call and said, I think this guy has myasthenia gravis, and uh, it was real, started real, real subtle, but, you know, that's not uncommon yep. for ophthalmologists to uh, make the right. diagnosis. A and, right. Yeah. Have a little but, double vision or yep. a little yep. drooping of the lids, and yep. Right. Uh, well, Jay, Jay things, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Go on, please. I was going to say, actually, you know, I had read something the other day where looking at uh, Alzheimer's and they have looked at the cells, cadaver cells, and compared uh, uh, different uh, MRI changes and are looking at, oh, they, the peripheral retinal cells may actually be a precursor for different things. Now, they don't have a way to really test that without looking at cadaver eyes uh, yet. But, you know, more and more, and certainly we can see circulation issues, you know, diabetic issues, all of that. But more and more, that is going to be, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a window to the soul, but it's also a window to the brain. Right, and, exactly. And uh, I think down the line, we're going to have scanners that can pick that up sooner. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense that it's, you know, really, if you think about the eye, it may be a little creepy for some people to think about it this way, but it is an extension of the brain. Um, you that know, out, so. Yeah, so it's, that that makes perfect sense. Well, Jay, thank yeah, you. So good, funny. Good. I don't, uh, thank you. I don't think of it creepy at all. It's like, I love it. It's, <laughs> you know, uh, the other stuff, you know, ortho and stuff like that, that's icky. I have a all right, Jay. Well, you take care, and uh, thank All you right. for calling. I appreciate it. Let's go to uh, Mark from Daphne. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. You can hear me okay? I can. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, since you happen to hit the autoimmune stuff, I want to uh, bring up one that is far too dear and near, near and dear to me. Uh, I have had, since 2007, I have had chronic fatigue syndrome, also mm-hmm. known as myalgic encephalitis. Um, and that one is not nearly so common. You oftentimes have to get to a specialist to, to uh, sort of get a handle on it, and there are all kinds of symptoms and all kinds of causes. That is one where there is no definitive test. Essentially, they rule out a bunch of similar conditions. 
However, there are what they call the Canadian criteria, like 10 things that the more of those you have, the worse, the more likely it is you've got chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's not just that you get tired and then you take a nap and then you're fine. It's like uh, you have a battery that's nearly depleted and you can go for a while and then when you tip over the edge, your battery is so shot that it's going to take you two days or three days or a week to get any energy back. So uh, one of the parts of that that it, people don't necessarily understand is if I'm having an okay time, you know, I'll get out of my car and be able to go do the things that I need, but I may have to have park in a handicapped spot to do it. So if somebody sees me parking in a handicapped spot, they go, well, he must be using Uncle Joe's tag after Uncle Joe died or something. It's not that. <laughs> right. It, you know, it, it's that I can't necessarily get to the back, front of the store and the back of the store and be sure uh, what I've got for energy. Now, oftentimes it's brought on by a combination of extreme stress of some sort and a viral condition. For me, I was working 100-hour weeks for six months and had walking pneumonia for three of those months. Yep. Yeah, that is, and, and that's that's a common well, we, you know, what we call an antecedent for um, for autoimmune processes. A lot of them, type one diabetes is a good example of that. Usually, in 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 kids that have that, you'll see that they had a viral illness, and then about four to six weeks later, you'll see that. And COVID really is another one that we see a lot of things, and we don't fully know, you know, the ramifications of all of that. But you're right; it's the body sees something that's foreign, it mounts up an immune response, but something goes wrong in that process, and then all of a sudden it's attacking your own body. Right, and and actually the uh, long COVID people who go for a long time and they never get their energy back and stuff like that is not dissimilar with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, Uh, very very similar symptoms, yeah. Yeah, I'm one of those people who got uh, maybe back to 50% after a long time. Uh, some people never get beyond the zero that they hit, and some people get all the way better. So yeah. it, it's just an interesting challenge. If somebody wants uh, to get information on that, they should research, because there are several major research hospitals like you know Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins and stuff like that who actually have specialty clinics for chronic fatigue. So if your doctor's looking for your exhaustion and can't figure out what's going on, sometimes it's worth checking. Uh, I went to a clinic in uh, North Carolina and was even in some National Institute of Health Studies. Uh, I'll just show this and I'll shut up. Uh, <laughs> one of them, uh, one of them, they actually did a uh, an IQ test, right, uh, a brain, brain cognitive test on a computer. Then they put me on a uh, treadmill and ran me till I was exhausted, and then they took the test again, and I could tell how much lower the cognitive function had gone from brain yeah. fog. Yeah. And then over the next over the next week, I logged on and took the cognitive test again each time, and I was able to see the the brain function improving. So yeah. it, you know they are doing some good research in it; they just don't have the answers yet. Right. 
Well, well, Mark, thanks for sharing that. That is, you know, autoimmune processes are very, uh, it's a lot of different ones. We have the main ones that everybody's familiar with, but thanks for, uh, for sharing that and your experience, and certainly that may help somebody out there to get those answers. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Got lots of good callers with lots of good questions. We're going to go to our next caller right now, William from Starkville. Good morning, William. Good morning. Uh, I uh, appreciate your uh, taking my call, but I like never to say it in order that we might save a, a fraction of a minute to get an extra caller in at the end of the program. I think the oh. program is so helpful. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, uh, I have, I think, uh, uh, arthritis uh, of uh, uh, to some degree that's never bothered me. It has never hurt until two years ago. Uh, I have a knee that uh, told me that the cartilage was going, but I uh, started a uh, hard program of glucosamine, and I've held it at bay for eight years. It never bothers me. I never notice it walking, only sometimes climbing stairs do I notice it. But uh, and it doesn't hurt. It just it doesn't feel right. It feels like rubbing your knuckles together, which are a little uncomfortable. But it does not hurt. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I made the, I had the misfortune to pick up a heavy pail of gravel uh, with a thin wire bale on the pail. Two pails, in fact. First with my right hand, and then with my left hand. My fingers have been crooked all my life, like or. Uh, in my old age, they've been crooked, and I'm really, really old. Uh, <laughs> my mother's fingers were crooked, too, but they never hurt. Uh, and uh, I picked up these, these bales of gravel, and boy, it hurt like crazy at the time. And my knuckles on my index fingers, fortunately, only hurt my index fingers. But the, the, the big knuckle, you know, in, in the, uh, what the, the second knuckle, I guess it is from the tip, from the fingernail, uh, is stiff and hurts. Uh, if I bend it sideways, it hurt. I'm just sitting here like this, but if I try to use it and uh, I have difficulty, boy, it's, it's almost impossible to do up buttons. Well, let's do it up with my second finger now. But I yeah. wondered... Is there is there anything that uh, that I can do? I just uh, got the Mayo Clinic bulletin that has a thing in there on on uh, arthritis, and uh, I thought it was going to deal with fingers, but it dealt more generally and and uh, described uh, uh, four different regimens of uh, of uh, of drugs that one can use. But boy, when I read the, the side effects, and I presume that they're my, that they're they don't always the side effects don't always appear, or nobody would use them. But uh, it just worries me, and I just wondered if what my choices are. If I can get a get a new joint in place and put in place in a finger like that, or uh, uh, if I should if I should see a, 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 a what do we call it a orthopedic person or what do you call an arthritis person? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the the rheumatologist too. I think in your case, though, this sounds like that wear and tear arthritis we've been talking about. And if you use your hands over and over again, you put stress on them, you can have that, and just the joint wears down over time. And sometimes you can get little calcifications, and it almost gets sort of frozen there. But pain is it the is. biggest limiting factor. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a common thing to sort of freeze up. 
But I would suggest there are probably some – we know that the more you move those joints and continually moving them, not necessarily picking stuff up, but just putting them through the motion, the longer you're going to have the mobility there, and it actually decreases pain. Some people just do simple stuff either with heat, uh, like, like putting your hands in warm water or cold water can sometimes help depending on, you know, the pain and mobility issues. I would suggest going to an orthopedic surgeon who also has some training in hand. Uh, so there's orthopedic hand surgeons, and they have additional training uh, in, in all the kinds of things that affect our hands. And they may be able to do some things, and sometimes that's like local injections into the joint space. You know, it's really complicated, those joints. You, you It may seem like you could replace them fairly easy, but it's pretty complicated to do that, and I don't know that the outcomes are that good. But I, I would talk to them and see if they can do some things first. And I agree, some of the other medications have some long-term side effects, but um, I bet you can find at least some partial relief for some of that. Yeah. Well, the main thing is stiffness and and loss of dexterity. That's the main thing. I can right. avoid bending it so it hurts, and I keep a lot of heat on it at night. I stick one hand under under each arm to keep it warm overnight. And uh, but thanks thanks so much for your help. I'll give that a try. All right, William. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Ruth from Yazoo County. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. Um, I had a an echocardiogram recently, uh, and we were in a closed, small closed room. Uh, I was two feet from him the whole time, mm-hmm. and he he was completely oblivious. I mean, he could see my age and how you know my high how high risk I was, and I was wearing a mask, but he wasn't. And I thought about it later. I should have said something, and and. Related to this, uh, in the small community where I live, the entire staff had COVID in the uh, past uh, past four to six weeks, and um, all of them. Now I don't know about any other community members, but they all had it, and uh, kind of indicated it was kind of rough, but they didn't want to talk about it, and that. I was inspired to call because somebody posted on Facebook there across the country in Nebraska or something, and they said something similar, that COVID's going around, but the people who have it won't talk, won't talk about it. And I guess this is political, you know. And I'm well, wondering, I... what is going on with doctors? Are doc- have doctors just given up? Just let me say one thing. Uh, yeah, nurses, yeah, nurses refuse to wear them here in this in Mississippi, no matter where I go. Now, the cardiologist I saw recently, he was wearing a mask, but the nurses don't. I'm just wondering what's going on with doctors. Have they given up? (laughs) Yeah, we haven't. (laughs) No, we haven't. Uh, So a couple of things with that. Now, your protection changes over time. Now, there's certainly people that, you know, they feel like either themselves to help protect themselves or others uh, continue to wear masks, but I'll tell you the, the the incidence of it in the community, our natural immunity and immunity from vaccines that we have, 
that sort of changed the playing field right now. It's a little bit different than it was two years ago. And, you know, we still have masks in clinic. We've lifted our mask mandate in clinic because of the risk has decreased. But we still, you know, it's up to the individual. If I have symptoms of COVID or anything else for that matter, then I'm going to wear a mask at the very least. I'm going to test myself. And if I'm positive, I'm going to be home for five days. So, um, you know, we still try to reduce that risk to our patients. And the same thing for patients coming in. If we have a patient that is symptomatic, we'll ask them to wear a mask. We wear a mask. and We may even wear an N95 mask when we go in the room. So we hadn't given up. You know, I can't speak to individuals, but I think as a as a group, things change over time. If you look historically at polio is probably a good example of had different times and when we had different things in our arsenal, we had different ways that we approached that. Same thing with chickenpox, you know, with thankfully for we have less chickenpox, we have less exposure to that uh, nowadays, particularly for those individuals that are immunocompromised. So I can't speak to every, you know, encounter or anything like that. But the other thing is, if somebody has it and we expose somebody, I think it's the obligation of the clinic or our, you know, individuals to uh, to disclose that. I mean, we've done that in the past if we had somebody that unknowingly had it. But what we do know is that it's not the same risk of transmission that it was because of that immun- uh, immunologic response. So thank you, Ruth, for calling. Hopefully that answers your question about that. Thank you to all our callers today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.